are back for yet another week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with the movers, the shakers, the TV and filmmakers, the producers, the writers, directors, actors, uh, cinematographers, costume designers, production designers, uh, sound mixers, sound editors, um, film editors, video editors, authors, you name it, we talk to them. And boy, we're doing a lot of, we did a lot of talking last week with Mark Pellington and Joy Vila on their, on their two films. Um, and by the way, you know, Mark Pellington's film, The Severing, that is still screening at Slamdance Film Festival through February the 6th. And Slamdance, it's all virtual, so it's 24-7. So if you want to take a look at Mark's, uh, Mark's film... And uh, trust me, I said it last week, it's not for everyone, but it is a visual explosion of emotion. Um, check it out on Slam D- at Slam Dance Film Fest. But today, uh, today we have a big show. <laughs> I'm so thrilled. We have a, a, my, one of my favorite returning guests, filmmaker, author, speaker, Steve Balderson, is going to join us at the midpoint of the show He's got, not only are we going to talk about his film, Alchemy of the Spirit, which is, has its premiere, I think it's the premiere, uh, or second showing, starting this week, Santa Fe Film Festival starts February 3rd, Alchemy of the Spirit is showing during the festival, I am so thrilled and just so proud of Steve, and what makes it even more special for me, is that I'm one of the jurors and judges for Santa Fe. And to see that the film made it into the festival really means a lot. Um, and I'm just so thrilled. But not only is Steve going to talk about that. Hey, Pam, is our Mevo working? Okay, our Mevo's working. Okay, if you're listening to us now on face on AdrenalineRadio.com on the Internet, you may even want to hop over to the AdrenalineRadio.com Facebook page because we've got our live stream going. And normally, yes, I do lovely tablescapes that are just during award season are filled with screeners of award-worthy films and films that, that have we have seen over the, the course of the year. But I have more visual aids today. I'm so excited with visual aids. Um, Steve Balderson is going to be talking about his latest book, How to Find Investors. Now, we, we previously, when Steve has been on the show before, uh, he talked about one of his prior books, and now I can't remember the name of it, about, about filmmaking, um, and it's superb. And it's got all kinds of tips and techniques for filmmakers. Well... It's one thing to have tips and techniques to make your film, but the first tip and technique you need is how to get money, how to finance it, especially on these low-budget, no-budget, micro-budget indies. And that is exactly what Steve and I are going to talk about today with his new book, How to Find Investors. And if you're looking at us on the live stream, you'll see all my post-its all over his book. Uh, So just... I can't wait for Steve to be joining us. Also, he has another book we're going to talk about as well that I think he sent me this. 
because I don't remember buying it. So I got to ask him because uh, it's a really great gift if he did. It is a paperback coffee table book, shot by shot, Alchemy of the Spirit, with every image of the film laid out. It is spectacular. And the cinematography on Alchemy of the Spirit is one of the big, big, big pluses. Um, it's a huge highlight of the film. Uh, very ethereal. Lends to a very existential feel. Uh, so Steve will be joining us at the midpoint. But first, I am very, very thrilled uh, to be able to share with you my exclusive interview that I just did on Friday with Kenny Liu. Uh, Kenny Liu... He was in Princess Yakuza. He was in Midway. Uh, he's had some uh, some other films uh, pop out as well, including The Long Road Home. He's done quite a few shorts. He's had some TV one-offs on shows like NCIS. But with A Shot Through the Wall, written and directed by uh, Amy Long, Kenny carries this film. This is his film to lose. And let me tell you, he doesn't lose this film. He soars in this film. A Shot Through the Wall is the story, and it, it stems from a real-life incident that Amy Long was aware of uh, a number of years ago. The story of Peter Liang, who uh, was an Asian-American cop whose bullet accidentally killed a black youngster in New York. Uh, Amy started the, the journey for A Shot Through the Wall in 2017, long before Black Lives Matter. Uh, and she put this together and finally got... They, they shot the whole film before Black Lives Matter and any of the political unrest that we faced the past few years in America. Uh, and she started with the premise of the Liang uh, real-life incident and built upon that so that we have... Here we have an accidental shooting of an innocent black man in Brooklyn by a rookie Chinese-American police officer. And this is something we haven't seen. We haven't seen the Asian perspective. The police shootings we see in real life, um, the political debates, it's all about, it's primarily black and white, black, brown, and white. We never get the Asian perspective. So this is a new look. It opens our eyes um, with a look at the situation through the eyes of a Chinese-American police officer. Uh, and as he tries to navigate um, the department protocols and policies, the media, racial politics, and also all the collateral damage to family and friends that comes as a result of this. Even more timely and topical now than when Amy first started the project in 2017 and when it was shot, this could very easily have been lifted right out of the incident that recently happened in the San Fernando Valley in the Los Angeles area with an errant shot from a police officer's gun went through the dressing room wall in a store and killed a young girl who was trying on clothes. Um, a shot through the wall... It is currently streaming. It's in theaters. It's on VOD. It stars, in addition to Kenny, it stars Sierra Renee, Clifton Davis, Zima, Fiona Fu, Lin Chen, Dan Loria. The cast is impeccable. And 
it addresses things like the cultural divide, the idea of respect, cultural respect, uh, your elders, the generational divide. And as we see in the film, Mike is involved in an interracial relationship with C.R. Renee's character of Candace, who is the daughter of Chief Walker, played by Clifton Davis, who happens to be Mike Tan's boss. Everything in the world, every possible influence is written in here and done so well. Uh, and Kenny does an amazing job conveying emotion and through body language, uh, dialogue, his performance is impeccable. So take a listen to my exclusive interview with Kenny Liu talking about a shot through the wall. Hi, this is Debbie. It is. Is this Kenny? Yeah, this is Kenny. How you doing? I am fine, Kenny. How are you? I'm doing great. It's uh, Friday. <laughs> uh, yes, it, thank God. <laughs> yeah, thank goodness we made it. Oh, my God. I'm so happy to get to speak with you, Kenny. Oh, same here, too. I, I've already I spoke with Amy uh, last week. I spoke with Clifton last week. And I got to tell you, this whole film, A Shot Through the Wall, just blew me away, as uh -huh. did your performance. This is a POV we have not seen before. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Everybody talks about white cops, black victims. Nobody talked the Asian community. Right, yeah. So to see this unfold with such authenticity thanks to Amy uh, with her tight script and your performance is just fantastic. Thank you so much. What you bring to Mike is so compelling. And I, as I watch the film progress and as I watch Mike go further down this rabbit hole with the lawyering and the media and social and social media and your body language spoke volumes with your head down hands in pockets you could feel the cultural shame that mike was internalizing for what he was bringing on his family and that was incredible to watch oh my god thank you for saying all that too because you know as a minority i i'm realizing that I don't expect people to understand those nuances and to feel like you're reflecting that back to me is very rewarding. So thank you for saying that. And I mentioned it to Amy as well. It's just amazing to watch that because what she has done, what you have done along with Zima and Fiona Fu to a very large degree is you bring us something we don't see much of anymore, which is respect. Respect for your elders, respect for culture. Right, absolutely. And that really comes to the forefront here. And Thank you. I hope I hope that it, it did. Um, and I and I hope that you know a lot of people see it the same way as you too, um, because you know on the surface we've had a lot of people say like, oh, so you know we should feel bad for the poor cops now, like. And that's really not what it's about. So I'm, I'm grateful to you for saying that. This is so not what it's about. It, yeah. Number one, to a degree, it's about a cop who gets, you know, railroaded. 
spread. So it touches on police corruption within the police unit, but it, it encompasses so much more. And it's really a lot of the collateral damage that comes. Exactly, yes. And that's what nobody thinks about. And even people that are out there in real life situations, and the first thing they do is they want to be on camera, they want to talk about it. What this shows is no, you don't want to do that. You want right. to keep, you want to have respect, respect for the victims, respect for your family, respect for yourself. And you really right. convey that so beautifully. Thank you so much. Most of the credit is Amy's. <laughs> <laughs> Amy wasn't the one on camera. <laughs> she's, she's the one usually yelling at me going, hey, you're too happy. <laughs> yes, you can't be happy. You can't be happy. I know, I know. That was that was tough because, you know, I'm a very naturally, like, cheerful person. And then, and then every time the camera turned on, she had to remind me, like, Kenny, you just killed somebody. And, and then, oh my gosh, Debbie, I lost 15 pounds on the shoot over the span of seven and a half weeks on accident. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was, it, was, it was tough, you know, putting, putting myself there. Given some of your other roles, Midway, Yakuza Princess, um, even Long Road Home, which is a mentally grueling film yeah. for an actor, as is this one. Yeah. What is it about this script, this character of Mike Tan, that really attracted you to the challenges that this role would bring? Uh, that's a great question. Um, honestly, you know, especially at the time, I was still, you know, an up-and-coming actor, so I didn't really have the choices <laughs> to be able to choose my roles. But I have noticed that certain projects do choose me, and and I think maybe there's something in the way that i you know carry myself or something but i do want to tell stories that are meaningful you know ones that last and um i think that it's crucially important now that we tell stories that are very uh relevant to something that is happening right now you know the sensitive topics the timely topics that we need to um put under a lens and understand with a lot of empathy and nuance uh, for us to even start to like find a solution towards um those are the types of stories that really i naturally gravitate towards and i'm i'm just really lucky that this film found me um because i do feel like this story is exactly what i've been looking for um so that's what drew me to it how did you even get into the mindset of Mike? Because I know Amy Bay was inspired to tell this story based on a real-life incident. And yeah. at this point in time, I know you, you shot this before right. the most recent, before Black Lives Matter, before the most recent incident here in L.A. with right. the cops and errant bullet going through the dressing room in a clothing store and killing yep. a young girl. So it is very really timely and topical, but... From your perspective, how did you get into the mindset of Mike? Did you do research into the police department, into rookies in particular? Because that's very key here that Mike is a yep. rookie. And he's partnered with another rookie who is only a, a self-serving little brat, personally. Um, right. <laughs> yeah, but, there's, so there's a lot. Um, because, you know, right away, I... And obviously, Amy knew this too. That you know, this was something that needed to be told very authentically and very groundedly because of how uh, relevant it was. Um, so 
So first of all, you know, we had to understand the case of the Peter Liang case. Um, so I actually flew to New York uh, several weeks before production began, and I was talking to people that were in New York that actually remember, remember the incident. So I was like walking down, up and down the streets of Manhattan and Brooklyn, talking to locals. Uh, what was their impression of it? How did they feel about that incident? What did they think should have happened? Um, I really wanted to understand from that perspective. Because I think, you know, I can Wikipedia all I want, but that's only like half of really the knowledge. Um, so there's that. And the second thing was I wanted to get a good grasp of what it is to grow up as a Chinese-American immigrant in New York that specifically grew up in Brooklyn, um, Bay Ridge specifically. So then Amy had me spend several weeks there too. I'm just people watching and talking to people in Chinese. Like it's, it's really a bizarre place because there's none of the signs are in English. It's like, you wouldn't be able to tell it's New York, Brooklyn. Um, so that was the second thing that I did. And the third thing actually was, and it wasn't necessarily just for the film, but I actually applied for the LAPD um, because I was realizing that our stories are becoming kind of parody, parodies of themselves. Mm-hmm. Like we've been telling cop stories since forever. And those images I felt like really needed to be updated. So I decided that I wanted to go see what it's like to be a police officer in this current day and age. So I actually applied to the LA um, Police Department. Um, and let me tell you, Debbie, the the way to even become a police officer nowadays is crazy. You, if you saw an application like, like half a foot thick, um, first of all, and they're going through your personal history, like they interview your friends, your relatives, your parents, they do a credit check, they check through like where you've lived, your sex, drug history, like everything. And then just, and then once you pass that, then you go through a week long test of several physical exams, several interrogations. Like I remember I was sitting across from a police sergeant, a professional interrogator, an attorney, and they're asking me questions like, well, why do you want to become a Los Angeles police department officer? And um, they're, they're like, and I'm attached to like a lie detector test too. And their driving purpose was to ingrained in your head that you know when you're a police officer you are a representative of your community Mm -hmm. that's it like you you are a leader and you are meant to protect the people in your community and it was really staggering to me because you know i'm seeing such a different image in the in the news in you know our films and television of what police officers are and i was seeing such a difference with how to even get in right now um and all the people that were applying were such uh, upstanding people and really wanting to do something good for for their, their community, and that you know that made that gap really made me start to think. I was like, wow, is it because of the job that changes you? You know, like maybe you started as this really you know intentionally good person, and because of your job, your day to day work, it changes you into somebody that can you know shoot somebody in the back on accident or even intentionally or you know, and so that really. Um, really shattered like my my perception and then um the very last thing (laughs) sorry this is getting a little long but um uh right before i I filmed the shop of the wall i was filming the long road home and that is also inspired by a true story um it's similar to black hawk down it's a group of american soldiers getting ambushed in Sagar city iraq and my character had to do some awful things in order to survive that conflict for example killing innocent women and children and so my experience there actually lended very um, a, a lot of clarity to this one because experiencing the violence of 
a gun shooting somebody and killing someone in cold blood is a feeling that I'll never forget. Um, and it, I, I borrowed a lot from that experience, um, shooting that um, into, into this one as well. Well, and here we've got a very powerful scene in a shot through the wall where, you know, after the bullet has gone awry and Mike runs into the apartment, there is somebody bleeding out. Yeah. And yeah. it's very visceral. Right. Very visceral, very vivid. But <clears throat> I so appreciate the fact that you put so much into preparing and getting mm -hmm. into this character. It shows on screen, Kenny. Thank you so much, Debbie. <laughs> it shows on screen. How beneficial was it for you being from an immigrant Chinese family? You get to speak Chinese. But what I really love here is the cultural respect, the family dinner, the whole idea of food. Right. I connected with this whole family immigrant dynamic yeah. immediately. Yeah, and, you know, with the whole idea of the food and the family table. And it doesn't matter how old you are. When your elders are sitting there, you shut up and you show them respect. Right. How important was that for you? to have all of that and be a part of that because I suspect that this has been what you've grown up with. Oh, definitely. I mean, it was so gratifying to be able to show elements of my culture like on the screen. And, you know, it's not just the Chinese culture, but, you know, the part of it is an immigrant culture. Um, me growing up Chinese-American in America, you know, you kind of grow up having two faces, you know, like you have a very different personality when you're interacting out there in the world, like at school, at your work, and you have a very different personality when you go home. And being able to showcase that in this film, it was, it was very natural finally. Like, <laughs> you know, something that I was like, oh, I could finally just, you know, be myself at home. Um, that was very gratifying. And secondly, you know, I felt a lot of responsibility, but also um, I'm just very proud to be able to, to show that because you know, a huge challenge that Asian Americans have had is we're constantly seen as the foreigner, we're constantly seen as people that don't belong here. And this a shot to the wall is a very American story. And at the center of it is the Chinese American family. And so it kind of bridges that gap from like, mm -hmm. oh, you know, we're always left out of the conversation, you know, of social justice as if we don't belong here, but we do. We're like fundamentally wrapped up in the middle of it and to see how a Chinese-American family deals with this very American problem, I think is something that a lot of Asian-Americans really needed um, because without that connection, we're constantly going to be seen as a foreigner and we're constantly going to be seen as, oh, you're, the, you're to blame for the China virus when so many of these Asian people aren't even Chinese or, <laughs> you know, don't have never even been in China before, you know? So that's, that's how I feel about how important it is to bridge that gap. I got to ask, because we, we do spend a lot of time with food uh, yeah. in, in this film. We have the big dinner gathering where Chief Walker shows up and Candace is there. Then we have other food prep times where, you know, mom doesn't think that, that Grace is doing things right. How was the food? Um, oh, my gosh. <laughs> we, uh, let's just say that uh, every time we had a dinner, Scene, uh, the food was all gone, and Amy had to remind us not to uh, eat the props. 
<laughs> I, I, oh my god um i take it that you were not eating panda express chinese food no no amy actually went to very she when she wrote it she said that she saw very specific dishes on the table and you know that i guess is her kind of easter egg dish type thing where you know each dish kind of represents a certain emotion or a certain um, thing and so she wanted very specific dishes and some of which we couldn't find at restaurants so then she actually i think she had a friend or i think fiona the the actress who plays the mother mm -hmm. a very good cook and she actually made a bunch of the dishes that were that were being served oh wow yeah yeah i think amy said that um told me that she went to fiona's like uh airbnb or something and they're cooking the night before a shoot you know so it was it was that type of a thing and you know it, for immigrant cultures i guess especially it's the food is so important because it communicates a lot that words can't yes and, and that's what she wanted there on camera too oh trust me i know that it's like the big thing is you go to grandma's house there are certain specific dishes that you had to have on the table that's right. Yeah, um, exactly. No questions asked. They had to be there, and they had to be cooked a certain way, or or desserts baked a right. certain way. Yeah, so I really related to the importance of food in the cultural dynamic in A Shot Through the Wall. Uh, another, another big thing here that I love, because each one of the Tan family represent a different element, a different point in the timeline of immigrants in America. You've got mom, who's still very, very, very traditional. Dad, who is a really nice blend right. of the old world and America. Lynn, who's very forward, or great, great, her character, Grace, is very much, very much Americanized. And then there's Mike, who's kind of caught in between. But we see all the different stages of acclimation, so to speak. Yeah. And one that really stands out is through the entire film with mom who kept saying, you should just go say I'm sorry. You should just go say I'm sorry. And that's such an old world yeah. idea. Right. And I love how that played out here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, we, I, I think, I think. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. You know, I think on the surface of a, a story like this, centered or loosely based on a case like this, it's very easy to uh, politicize it and to see as, you know, this is just another statistic. You know, oh, another police officer accidentally or intentionally kills a black man, but then the human element of it is lost. You know, like, what is justice? Does he need to go to jail? Is that it? You know, it's not so cut and dry. And I think what Mike needs to learn at the end, and he does, is that there's, it's a film about the collateral damage. Mm -hmm. It's not just himself and the victim. It's all the people around both of them that are being severely affected by this. And, and you know, his clumsy solution, and maybe in some ways the one that needed to be done, is he, he wants to go apologize to the mother and he does and and that's that's how i see it too is in that there's we forget that you know in the midst of all this political discourse we forget that at the center of human beings 
and we need to remember that. I absolutely love that, that aspect of this and the generational timeline of acclamation that we see unfold. Something else is very unique about this film. We also have Mike in an interracial relationship. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know, we got the whole ball of wax here, Kenny. Uh, I know, there's a lot to unpack. And, you know, Amy just did a great job of blending it all together. Um, a bunch, I'm, I'm so grateful I'm talking to you because I feel like a lot of people that have seen it um, that aren't a minority generally, like, did not see a lot of the cultural nuances and the importance of it, um, how it's essential to understanding really what is going on emotionally. Big part of it is people have to have, you have to live a life, you have to open yourself up to the world. And it gives you a perspective right. that a lot of people, they don't have that perspective and they don't want to know that perspective. And that's the yeah. sad thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Especially now, it's like people seem like they feel like they know everything already. And the tragedy of that is once you feel like you know, then you stop looking. That's what I love with this film is because the blinders come off. Mm-hmm. The blinders come off, and then you are you are the one that lead us through this journey. And you you really, Kenny, I can't say enough about your performance. It really, it is so moving. It is so incredible. And the authenticity just, it, it's there on the screen. Thank you so much. I appreciate that so much. As an actor, because this is really your first huge role. This is your film to lose. Just so you know that. It's your film to lose, Kenny. (laughs) (laughs) But because this is such a big role for you, leading role on tackling such a big subject with all these subchapters happening, what did you... As an actor, learn about yourself. Mm. You can, and also because I'm tapping into your engineer's brain here as well. <laughs> yeah. Because engineering is very specific. Right. It's very compartmentalized. It's very exacting. Yeah. Uh, and if something is off the slightest, something ain't going to work. Absolutely. So I'm curious what you learned about yourself with this role that you can now take forward into your future performances? Um, You know, I think I found a a lot more clarity in my purpose. You know, like, you you can become an actor, but there's a lot of different kinds of actors, and the stories that I want to tell are the ones that are very similar to this one. You know, I want to update the images that we have. Um, I want to... Uh, tell a meaningful story, one that is lasting, um, one that is a commentary on something that is reflective now. You know, we have so many um, hero's journey, like superhero type films, and they're universal, and that's what makes them great. But then what I think gets lost is that we stop analyzing ourselves now. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really important because we as a culture have a lot to learn with things changing so quickly. Um, we have a lot to learn. And so I hope to continue telling stories just like this. Um, that's, that's my biggest thing, um, is finding a lot of purpose in the specifics of what kind of stories that I want to put out there. Um, secondly, um, you know, it's really amazing now that we have Crazy Rich Asians, we have Shang-Chi out, and, 
you know, Asian stories are very bankable now. And so people want to see more Asian stories. Um, I do see the world as very wide open uh, right now for, for Asian stories. Um, and I want to tell more stories that tie uh, Asians into the fabric of America. Um, there's, you know, the story of like the 442nd Infantry Regiment, which is the most decorated United U.S. military uh, group in the history of the U.S. military. And they're basically the Japanese Americans who, you know, were interned and decided to still um, fight for America in World War II. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, it's stories like that that I feel like didn't get covered so much. Like when I was going to my history classes in my public education, it's, you know, it's very black and white, like our history, and um, at least the way it's presented to us. And so I want to I wanna tell stories that incorporate into the fabric of America more so we bridge that gap of understanding. See, and I, and I love that. I love that. And I love those kind of stories. Of course, I'm also one of those anal people that if it's missing in the curriculum, I go I go look for it. I go look for it, and I highly suspect that you do the same thing. Oh, absolutely! I, I kind of had to, you know, because then otherwise it's like, well, where, where do I belong? <laughs> where do I fit? So now, do you have anything upcoming on your plate that you can talk about yet? Well, I I'm very fortunate um there's several of the projects that i worked on before um people have reached out to me and said that hey i want to attach you as a lead in this next project that i'm developing um so i can't say them too much but there's two tv shows and that was 98.7 percent of my exclusive interview with kenny lou a shot in the wall the entire interview, you will be able to hear it. It will be up online tonight. Just before we went on air, my editor sent me an email that she had, she had finished uh, putting together the video slideshow. For those of you that go to BehindTheLensOnline.net or to the Behind the Lens Online YouTube channel, uh, you know that we take, I take all these interviews and then we put them to, uh, together in a video slideshow so that you have corresponding images to what's being discussed uh, during the interview itself uh, so that you get a greater sense of what's happening. And uh, Kenny's interview will be up later tonight uh, along with Clifton Davis's and Amy Long's. So be on the lookout for that. And now... The man, the myth, the legend himself, Steve Balderson, is here. Hello. Hello, hello. Hi, Debbie. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I am great. It's so good to hear your voice. It is so good to hear yours. It's always so much fun to talk to you. Thank you. Same. I mean, sadly, we couldn't. you couldn't make it into the studio today because you're traveling. Yes, I'm up in Monterey, Carmel area, and I'm sadly not there with you. Well, <laughs> that is very sad because had you been here, it would have been you and me for the whole hour. Oh, uh, great. <laughs> <laughs> because there's so much to talk about with you, my friend. First of all, first of all, did you send me, because I don't see any record that I bought it. Did you send me shot by shot? Yes, I did. 
I got this in front of my door on Saturday. And I was like, I didn't buy this. This is really great. Did Steve send this? This is so beautiful. This is, I can honestly say it's my very first soft cover coffee table book. Oh, cool. Yeah. Because that's exactly what this is. Yes, it is. And it's something that I'm going to do because I own my own publishing company. I I think it's a fantastic thing to do for some of my favorite filmmakers. Uh huh. So I've re- I've reached out to some people that I've met at film festivals over the years to also publish a book of, you know, every shot of their film, which I'm really excited about. You need you and Mark Pellington need to get together. Okay. Uh, because Mark is also putting together a book uh, about his work with multimedia over the years. You know, music, video, and films, and television. Uh, and Mark is such a visualist, um, and and we were just talking about it last week on the show. Uh, cool. So yeah, Mark is definitely somebody that I think the two of you need to connect and hook up. Um, so I will make that happen if you need me to. Amazing. Uh, but I love this. I was so thrilled to get this, and. You know, cool. f- for people who are watching the, the show live stream on AdrenalineRadio.com Facebook page, uh, I was showing it earlier, but I mean, this is just, you can see the incredible cinematography in Alchemy of the Spirit, which we're going to talk about shortly, and the beautiful imagery. And Xander Berkeley never looks so good. I got to tell you. I know. He, <laughs> he, he, has, he has aged really well. Like, I... You know, like, I don't know, he's just so cool looking, and especially on camera. Like, he's just, he's so great. I think he, I was, what was I watching last week? One of the lovely films where he's a less than nice guy uh, from decades ago. And uh, I keep thinking, he he just, he's gotten handsomer with time. And he looks, I mean, and the imagery of how... uh, Hahnemann captures him on screen with light and lens in alchemy is just fabulous. Mm-hmm. Absolutely fabulous. But what do you want to start with? You want to talk about alchemy? You want to talk about the book? The how to find investors so you can make your darn film. This Yes. You know, let's 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 do that because it's it's one of the things that I found over the years that everybody wanted to know how was I able to raise the funding and make, you know, over 17 feature films without big money and without the Hollywood system? Yeah. And I loved telling people. I love sharing the information. But it also takes about three or four hours each time. So I decided to just put it down into a book so I can just hand them the book instead of, you know, and then I can save that three or four hours elsewhere. <laughs> see, you're not see, you're not looking at the at the Facebook live stream right now, but if you were, I'm holding up the book and I have no less than thirty post it notes on multiple pages in the book with notes then written on those. <laughs> Amazing. I did this with your last book too. Um, you know, it's you give the best information in a clear, concise, easy to read, and fun fashion. Uh, and it's just, you know, a lot of this stuff, it's common sense, but common sense escapes you when you're dying to make a project. And it's, I want to make a movie, I want to make a movie, I want to make a movie. 
and common right. sense just leaves your head. Um, but you put it all right here, and you even have little cheat sheets that, with lines, just like in elementary school, so people can actually write their notes on them. Totally. Uh, you make this so easy, Steve. So let let well, that's, break this down. Thank you. I mean, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that's the thing is every time I share this information with someone, by the end of it, they they leave relieved that they feel, oh, I can go raise the money for my movie. <laughs> it's so exciting to see their faces when that happens. Well, what's really great is how you break this down into chapters that are based on. You know, we've got the types of people. You need to make a list. I love this. Make a list. Uh, you talk about how you got money for your first film and, and how you had a mentor who helped you. Um, and by the way, I do like the cooking tip. He gives us cooking tips, people. We get a cooking <laughs> tip in the book. You know, if you don't want watery pasta on your plate, um, you know, cook the pasta in the tomato sauce itself. Um, just... You know, I love it. You're just one-stop shopping. I can't, I can't wait for you to try that. It really works. Oh, I'm going to. I am actually going to do that this week. I... <laughs> cool. He gives us puzzles on connecting the dots to form a square, which is really what getting to the crux of filmmaking is all about. And you yeah. start this by identifying the five kinds of people that that typically invest in films that want to get involved. You've got your philanthropist, those that it's a vanity project. They want to see their name on IMDb. Um, strategic purposes, losses. Yes, we can all look at a lot of films. Those of us that have been around a while and we know why somebody ponied up the money. They needed a tax write off. Uh, and then diversification to diversify your own portfolio to make money. Right. And also to diversify your own interest and diversification. Those people are the ones that want your money back. I admit I have right. fa I have yeah. fallen in that category and I have yet to see my money back from several people. Um, but I digress. Uh, <laughs> right. But you break this down and talk about each of these categories. And one of the really interesting ones are how you can get people in who have who have belief in philanthropic causes. That's your entree. Oh, That's yeah. your way in. And you go through this and tell everybody what you look for. What do you notice? How do you put some how can you tell who's in what kind of category that might want to give you money? Right. And sometimes they overlap. I mean, over the course of time, I. You know, I would meet an, a new investor and I would say, gosh, he reminds me a lot of this earlier investor I had. And then I started realizing the similarities between all these people and, and how they do fit into sort of these categories that I've found. Yeah, I mean, and I think you very succinctly have come up with the right categories. Um, you know, it's, you know, when you, you philanthropy, that's always a really, really good way to get funding for your film. But I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that is more appropriate if you're trying to do a documentary because you've got a cause or an issue. 
Could be. Although there was once I had an investor who invested in our fictional story just because she liked us. She liked my story. She liked uh, my work ethic. You know, she liked my family. Like it was it was more about me than it was about the particular project. Mm hmm. And so sometimes that's really helpful, especially, I mean, I love that category type because they're the people who actually are there to support you and they want yeah. to see you succeed. And out of that, you build lifelong friendships, which is great. Yeah. Um, my accountant keeps telling me I, I seem to have fallen into that since I don't recoup anything. Uh. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> He's been telling me that for a few years. Um, but you've got subcategories happening here, you know, like with vanity. Um, I like this idea of vanity adjacent where there might be somebody you want or you're going to, but not for money, but who you can team up with to bring in somebody else who may have the money. Right. That's probably the, the easiest one or the most widespread one that people, you know, come across is let's make this together and pool our resources and find out who do we know collectively who can all come together to make this happen. Now, would you, would you say with indie films, that may be one of the biggest ways of getting your indie film financed, especially in the low budget, no budget, micro budget uh, category. I think so. You know, I mean, but you know, and the, but the way you lay this out, I really, really uh, like this. And, you know, you move into strategic purposes. And something very keen here, a lot of filmmakers think, okay, I should go to that city or that state because there are tax credits. But you talk about tax credits. And it's not necessarily about tax credits in making a move to shoot a film in a certain place or look at a certain location. There are other ways that you can get funding for your film that is not tax credits, but it's right. very strategic, um, such as with a particular city. You know, is everybody donating, you know, locations and food and all they want is just a thank you on the end credit? Um, that, you know, that takes care of probably 50% of your budget. Exactly. And then there are also situations where, you know, their economic development and travel and tourism boards want to bring awareness to their city. So they help you fund your movie as a, a advertisement or a postcard to, to bring people to their place. Now, that's easier when you have a movie star in your movie, um, but you can still do it on an indie micro scale, you know, by showcasing the place itself. Mm hmm. Or, or the businesses. I could very easily see a small town, and they don't necessarily need a big star, but the fact that they, their businesses, the camera's going to be capturing their businesses through the whole movie on Main Street, um, you know, they may pony something up and want to be involved because of that, just for the individual and exposure. It, exactly, and it could just be trade. It may not be cash. You know, they might feed your cast and crew for the weeks that you're there, which saves you a ton of money. Yeah, especially now in the protocol days 
where buffets are gone. You've got to have individual packaged meals. Um, So, you know, all of these little things that people don't think about. And as we all know, when, you know, feeding your cast and crew is very important. So if you can get businesses willing to do that, I think that's a darn good trade-off. That barter system works well there. Totally. You know, but... And you give a, you give some great statistics here. I love the the top fifteen countries by the number of feature films produced. That's a record that's kept by UNESCO. And India, India, eighteen hundred films in twenty eighteen. Wow! Yeah, isn't that crazy? United States, six hundred and sixty in twenty seventeen. Um, now I know there are a lot more than 660 a year being made in the United States, um, cause I watch them, but yes. it, you know, this doesn't include because that these numbers include your fiction animation and documentary. It doesn't include your festival stuff, the stuff that doesn't have distribution yet, uh, things along those lines, but it's amazing. Right. Yeah. It is amazing to see what's what's being pumped out. And um, you don't think about Turkey as being a hotspot for making films. And yet Turkey is number 15 on the list. Uh, right. That's one of the things I love is just to open up the spectrum of Hollywood's not the only place. And if you're in that place and you're inside that you know arena, you forget that there's a whole world of filmmakers and film industries that you can also make your movies with them <laughs> you know and it's just it's so relieving to think of it that way yeah but yeah and and you move on and and you go through uh you know dealing with the losses and the return on investment um you know i like the losses i like your notes here needs the write-off needs tax help doesn't want your film to make money <laughs> <laughs> write down anyone right, you write down anyone you know who has any of these traits. <laughs> this I think was my totally. favorite my favorite page in, besides the cooking tip. My favorite page in the entire book, Steve. Um, you know, this is one of the great things. You keep us looking. Um, you know, you give us these little funny tidbits, but they're truths. Um, everything in this book is a truth. Um, and, but you entertain us while you're doing it, while you're dispensing those truths to us. And that always makes, you know, it easier to swallow, especially when you're thinking, oh God, I don't know anybody that wants to lose money. I don't know anybody that wants a tax write off. Um, but you, you give a lighter side. It's like, everything is not hopeless. You can get money. Uh, exactly. And, and the other thing is, you know, sometimes we're not looking at why, what's right in front of us because we're thinking about something else. So that's also part of my motivation for writing How to Find Investors, because a lot of times there are opportunities right in front of us, but we're so focused about what's happening across the street that we forget what's here. And by by encouraging people to remember these other items, they say, oh, aha, I do know somebody in this category, but I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. And that's just it. You make us stop and think. Any filmmaker who, or any wannabe filmmaker, it's like, 
I want to make my film. I really want to make my film and I don't have any money. What do I do? You know, you read this and you will stop and think. And the fact that after you read a, a chapter, after you read a section and you have, you know, a cheat sheet, a school worksheet there for you, right away it makes you think. And you can think of people to put down in these different categories. Um, yeah. I really love that. But you also, something important, you spend a good portion of time talking about, number one, what is your desired outcome in making a film? Why? You know, right. what what is it? And you've heard me opine before about filmmakers when I talked about, well, when you made this, what were you looking for? For everybody to see it. Well, can you narrow that down? No, everybody. You have you've you've <laughs> right. you've got to have you've got to hone in. You got to hone in on the money aspect. You know, what is realistic for your budget? What is your outcome with a budget? What is your outcome for the film? That goes hand in hand. And you I right. and, I, it, yeah. I love that you spend time with that and then you bring in the idea of communication. Communication mm -hmm. through body language, voice tone, your use of vocabulary words. Are you using $1.95 words talking to somebody who really has a 50-cent vocabulary? Right. You know, ta uh, please, can you elaborate on, on those issues in this book right now? Because I think those are some of the, mo the key things. For yeah, even filmmakers, you, you understand the categories and, and the types of people you're sitting down with very seldom do. Does anyone who's going in to pitch something think about the other person and what they're hearing and what they want? And and, you know, if you just encourage someone to learn about the true meaning of communication is not the words that are coming out of your mouth, but rather what the other person hears and how they're processing the information. And if you can learn how to give them the communication that they need to understand what it is you're talking about, then they're on the same page, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. um, but oftentimes we go in and sit down and say, I got to tell them how great I am, how great my movie is, how original this is. And they forget all about the other person and they're only thinking about themselves. And, you know, I've, been prey to that you know i fall in prey to that early on and now it's something i'm aware of so when i sit down with someone it's different today than it was 20 years ago mm -hmm. um but that's one thing people i think really need to which is why i spend you know the last third of the book talking about it because yeah it is really really important yeah and i mean for my money i mean i related so so much to that because it's the same thing when i'm writing something I, I know who my audience is. If I'm writing a tech piece, I know who I'm writing to. I know what to, you know, how to say it. If I'm writing a legal brief, it's going to be written a lot differently than a review of a Tyler Perry Medea movie. Right. Um, you know, it, you've got to know and know the audience that you're speaking to, that you're making a film for, that you're writing to, and you... And very keenly, you have to be aware of that other person. And I think you really, really lay that out 
so succinctly here, Steve. Um, Thank you. I mean, this and now I mean, and this book, you're going to talk about this at Santa Fe Film Festival next week. Yes. And I'm very, very excited. I love talking about this, especially to a group of people. Um, And I'm also very, very excited to premiere our film, Alchemy of the Spirit, there. And I'm really excited to go there and present it in person. And then the next week, we're at the Boston Science Fiction Film Festival. And then about four weeks later, we're in competition in Portugal at Fantas Porto. Oh, my God. And I'm excited to go there and present it there. I think there's only three films from the United States in the main competition. So um, I'm I'm real excited to just check out all of them. I am going to go for sure. Well, you know how excited I was about Alchemy. That when, I mean, it's when I came on to Santa Fe as a juror and a judge, I did not know you had submitted to Santa Fe. And even the programmer, the fest director, they can tell you, I went through the roof. I was so excited to see Alchemy as one of the films submitted. Uh, And you don't know how hard it was for me to bite my tongue and not tell you when you got accepted into the festival. (laughs) I do. I know. (laughs) You know, I'm biting my tongue about something else that I can't tell you. Um, Great. (laughs) (laughs) God, I hate that. I hate that. But I am, I'm so excited. But, um, and, you know, the great thing about Santa Fe is, as you said, you're going to be there in person to talk about alchemy and also give a presentation on finding investors. And Santa Fe is live and in person. I yeah, mean, it's so exciting to, I mean, even though there's still, you know, the lingering, you know, the pandemic's here forever, but like, uh, you know, it's just, it's so nice to have the ability again to, you know, connect. And I'm, I'm very fortunate in the way that we were able to produce the film when we did and yeah. finish it up, you know, during the time we did so that now when things are opening back up again, we can actually be there to celebrate, you know, all cinema together, which is so exciting. Yeah, I'm still trying to figure out how I can get over there, juggle, and at least get over there for a couple days. Um, because I really, I, there are so many good films in the festival, uh, and I really want to be there. Do you know what day you're giving your presentation on the book on how to find investors? How to find investors is Friday, February 11, I believe, at 2 p.m., and then the screening of Alchemy is the following day on Saturday, February 12th. And I will be there um, that whole weekend. So I'm, I'm looking forward to also meeting other filmmakers and seeing their movies. And it's just such a great thing to go to someone else's film and to meet other writers and directors and actors because you can really get some really good friendships and collaborators that way. You know, and that's one thing I love about film festivals. That's what I loved about L.A. Film Festival, even dances with films locally here in Los Angeles. Um, I love that. It's that personal connection that you make um, that you don't get virtually. You know, with Slamdance, Sundance, they went all virtual. Many others have gone all virtual again, you know, for the second and now in some cases third year in a row. And you lose that that connection that that ability to communicate that you talk about in the book you lose that uh when it's not live and in person 
And right. you also one of the big things is the energy that you get with the festival in addition to the connections. And with a lot of filmmakers, I think that energy really helps them to move on to the next step, to maybe move into film two or film three. Um, yeah. You're on film what, 23 now? Well, I just finished directing a new project, which, <gasps> because it's length, probably will end up being a limited series or a miniseries. Ooh. Because, uh, and I've never done anything like that before, but it, it's really exciting, and I'm in the middle of post-production on it, and it would be number 18 if it were a okay. feature. When do, I get to, <laughs> when do I get to see it? The moment it's finished. Okay. All right. You know I like seeing your films the moment they're done. I love sharing them with you before anybody else. <laughs> well, you also know I'll tell you, I'll, I'll, I'll give you honest feedback, too. Exactly. That's the other thing that I love about you is that your, your response and reaction to something comes from a place that typical moviegoers aren't are thinking about those things. And I, I just I, I so value your opinion and, and insight into anything i mean you're just such you're so great and i love talking to you and you're such a good awesome woman so oh, thank you for this opportunity to talk to you again today oh my god you know i'll talk to you any chance i get you know oh, thanks but you're always so busy with books i know I like <laughs> what like with a book called phone sex you know we got we have to take a second here i know we're running late and big boss is in this in the studio today so he'll start complaining in a few minutes i'm sure but I, we got to talk about what is this book, Phone Sex, that you just released? Okay, so in, <laughs> in 2006, I was struggling with raising money for my next film, and I was sitting at my desk, and I looked at my address book, and I just emailed everybody in it. And I asked them to call my voicemail and answer the question, what is sexy? And then I compiled all of their voicemails oh my God. into about an hour and a half. And then I paired it with photographs that I'd taken. And I, I made this sort of documentary that was also part video installation at some galleries and museums. And during uh, lockdown, I thought, you know, this should be a coffee table book. And so I had it uh, transcribed so that every caller, uh, you can read what they say. And with the exception of a couple of people, no one said the same thing twice. Oh, wow. And, and it's a really fascinating insight to the human being. And, you know, callers ranged from Margaret Cho and uh, Pin Gillette, you know, all the way down to the local house painter, you know, or the plumber that lived down the street. <laughs> and the, the reaction of what everybody found to be the answer to what is sexy is really fascinating. And to especially hear them, you know, in the documentary is very, very intimate because they're just telling you the truth on the telephone. And it's it's really fascinating. Oh, I really, really love it. So wow. that that was just published a couple of months ago. And so luckily we got to do a, a book release reading, you know, in Los Angeles. Josie Cotton and Pleasant Gaiman came to read their calls. And it was a lot of fun to have that opportunity also to connect in person and you know have a book reading again yeah because i saw that and i, I was going to try and make it and i just could not get there for it um because i was so intrigued but i thought i'll just wait i'll ask him i'll ask him what this is all about 
But no, now I have, I've got to go buy ba- that one. You were nice enough to give me shot by shot. Again, that was such a nice surprise to get at my door on Saturday. I can't tell you, Steve. I cannot tell you. Yay! That was just in, in the, the weekend of film screenings from hell for tomorrow's interview hell day. Um, you, you were a huge highlight that kept me going this weekend seeing this book. So awesome. I, thank you. I thank you so much for that. Well, unfortunately, before Big Boss starts yelling, um, I have to let you go. I'm so sorry. Oh. I'm so sorry. We have to do this again. I'm going to try and get to Santa Fe. Actually, I'm trying to get there the weekend you're going to be there. Cool. And if, if you're there, it would be lovely to see you. And if, if you're not, we'll see you again soon in L.A. Yes, and we'll have you on the show in live, in person, in studio for a whole hour. Perfect. Steve, my darling, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Uh, and everybody, thank you. Have a beautiful day. Everybody, go to Amazon. They can buy How to Find Investors on Amazon. They can buy Shot by Shot, Alchemy of the Spirit on Amazon. That's $30. How much is How to Find Investors? How to Find Investors is like twenty four ninety five. Yeah, I mean, that's what I thought. It's more approachable, but... Hey, thirty dollars for so, a beautiful coffee table book is well worth it. Yeah, totally, and you know, it's like watching. I mean, anybody who's interested in filmmaking, you know, I wish I would have had a book like that of some of Hitchcock's films when oh. I was in film school, just to see the visual composition. Like I, to lay it all out like that, you can almost look at it like a graphic novel, and even without dialogue, know what's going on. Absolutely. Ah, oh. everybody should buy them. And I'm going to go order phone sex and buy that just because I think it sounds so cool. Now I have to buy it. Got to have it. <laughs> oh, cool. Steve, thank you, thank you, thank you. Have fun. Everybody, Santa Fe Film Festival, Alchemy of the Spirit. Steve Balderson stars Xander Berkeley. Uh, Matthew Delamater is in it, too. And you've all heard my interview with Matthew where we talked about that in addition to his role in the tender bar. So I'm just covering everybody on all bases here. Uh, so Amazing. <laughs> all right. So good. I will talk to you soon. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. Have a great week. You too. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye-bye. And that was filmmaker, author, lecturer, Steve Balderson. How to find investors, filmmakers. Get it, get it, get it. Also, shot by shot, alchemy of the spirit. And world premiere, Alchemy of the Spirit, next week, Santa Fe Film Festival. And as we are all out of time, uh, next week we have another full house with two live guests, including one of my favorite people again, Joan Carwigan is back with us to talk about her new film. Uh, so, until then... I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens.